0: Many of you listening to this podcast have probably seen Cocaine Cowboys by Raconteur or watched Narcos on Netflix about Pablo Escobar and Gilberto Rodriguez Orwella from the Cali cartel. In the 80s and 90s, prosecutors were going after these huge kingpins and trying to bring them to justice. But in Miami, that wasn't enough for prosecutors. They wanted to go after not only the kingpins, but the lawyers for the kingpins as well. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to one of the deans of the criminal defense bar, Marty Weinberg, about a federal case where the feds went after a criminal defense lawyer for his representation of the Cali cartel. This is different than the last three episodes where we've talked about state cases, sex, shootings and the like. The federal prosecutions are different. Typically, the stakes are much higher. There are no cameras in the courtroom. It's much more complicated these cases are also built on cooperating witnesses or snitches. And you haven't heard much about these types of witnesses in the first three episodes, but you'll hear a lot about them today. And you'll hear about how snitches try to get out of their huge sentences by pointing the finger at other people and trying to get their sentences reduced by having prosecutors help them and ask the judge to reduce those sentences. But back to Marty, who is going to be representing and discussing his representation of one of the lawyers of the Cali cartel, Bill Moran. And Bill and his co-defendant, Micah Bell, put together a dream team of lawyers, Albert Krieger, the Shrebnik brothers, Roy Black. And in this episode, one of those dream teamers is Marty Weinberg, the absolute best. You'll hear from him in For the Defense, next. All right, today we have uh, one of the deans of the criminal defense bar, Marty Weinberg, uh, who's up in Boston. And Marty is has tried cases all around the country in state and federal courts. He's appealed uh, cases and argued appeals in, in uh, courts of appeals all throughout the country, all the way to the Supreme Court and has won a Fourth Amendment case in the Supreme Court, which there aren't many lawyers who have done all of that. So it's, it's a great honor and pleasure of mine to be interviewing uh, my friend and colleague, Marty Weinberg. And today we're gonna to be talking about um, a crazy case from back in the late 90s where Marty represented a lawyer named Bill Moran. And, and Bill Moran was a criminal defense lawyer And and just to set it up for a second, uh, back in the 80s in Miami, criminal defense was like the Wild West. Lawyers were getting paid in in suitcases of cash. Um, There was tons of drug work for criminal defense lawyers, and it was was nuts. And then the 90s came along, and the government wanted to not just go after uh, drug dealers in the war on drugs, but really targeted criminal defense lawyers as well. And it it was a a very difficult time for criminal defense lawyers around the country and in Miami. And and the main case was uh, the Moran Abel case. And Marty represented Bill Moran, a criminal defense lawyer who was representing Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez Orwella, the heads of the Cali cartel. And so, Marty, I'll, I'll turn to you. Can you tell us a little about what Bill was charged with. I mean, he was acting as a criminal defense lawyer. How could he be charged in this case? Well, he was charged
1: and deliberately charged by the U.S. Attorney's Office with the most uh, draconian set of criminal allegations that included a Title 21 drug conspiracy charge, alleging that he was essentially in partnership with his clients to import and distribute mega amounts of narcotics in America, he was charged by both the Rico and the Rico conspiracy statutes with being a, a member and an associate of the Cali cartel enterprise, which was the uh, foundation of these two racketeering charges. A statute that was uh, originally designed to combat organized crime and was being used you know, in Miami to combat the cocaine importations from Kali. But what was unique is that the lawyers who were representing the Kali defendants or the Kali um, principals were now being alleged to have been members of the Kali cartel and associated and furthering the interests of the Kali cartel.
0: The more traditional charges were obstruction of justice and money laundering. So, I mean, I tried to read the indictment. It was like 161 pages. I mean, to charge lawyers with acting in the RICO enterprise, I mean, that had never happened before. How did, how did you deal with those kinds of charges? But look, they were designed to join the lawyers
1: with the narcotics traffickers. And clearly that provided an enormous challenge, first in terms of our attempts to sever the lawyers and focus the case just on the allegations against the lawyers. And when that failed, we had to uh, accept reality and spend a, an enormous amount of our credibility defending Mr. Moran against charges for which he was innocent. For instance, a Title 21 charge that, were he convicted,
0: would have required minimum mandatory punishment up to life. Now, a Title 21 charge is a drug charge. So so he was charged not just with trying to go talk to witnesses, but with actual drug dealing itself. Um, and, I mean for a lawyer to be charged, he had never brought drugs, done any of those things, but it allowed the government to bring in all of the drug dealing activities, the violence and everything else that the uh, drug dealers had done. I mean, did that spill over into the trial onto Moran and Abel? Yes, both directly and indirectly. The direct part is
1: that they were co-defendants in the courtroom being co-prosecuted for drug importations, indirectly because of the spillover and the that, even though there was to some extent limiting instructions, you know, jurors were hearing over a course of four month trial this holistic, uh, paradigmatically criminal set of allegations, having the challenge four months later. To compartmentalize the evidence against the lawyers, which at least some of them did, because the result of this trial was an acquittal on certain count, the RICO, the substantive RICO count, and a hung jury on the other count. So all right, I but don't get ahead.
0: enormous credit. Don't get ahead of me, Marty. We get we're <laughs> going to get to the verdict, which was incredible. But let's let's back up for the pretrial stuff. So the government initially raids lawyers' offices, takes Everything in the lawyer's office, files, computers, I mean, the criminal defense bar must have been up in arms about this. They were... Deeply and collectively concerned because it was
1: not just two lawyers, one being a Washington lawyer named Michael Labelle, who was a former Justice Department head of their Office of International Affairs, as well as Bill Moran, who was a major lawyer and one of the most highly respected and skilled criminal defense lawyers in the Southern District of Florida, but four other lawyers, many of whom had were the subject of searches and seizures. And in fairness to the government, from one lawyer, they found an enormous amount of cash in the ceiling of his law office that he was holding for his clients. Another lawyer, when they seized his financial accounts, learned that he was, a, in some respects, a paymaster who was receiving funds from the Colombian uh, traffickers and sending them to different lawyers to represent third parties. So this is not a black and white situation.
0: No, and there's clearly some things that cross the line, holding money to give to others. I mean, there's certain things that clearly cross the line. Other things about drafting affidavits for witnesses and, and attorney notes, for instance, or impressions. I mean, how do you How does the government and how does the defense work through those privilege issues and and search issues? Okay, so before Marty answers how he got through the search issues, I have to, in full disclosure, let you know that I represented Gilberto Rodriguez Orwella. I had just left the public defender's office, and he had been extradited here to Miami from Columbia. Now, this is the head of the Cali cartel. He's in the federal detention center in Miami. I was going quite often because I had a bunch of my public defender clients that I had brought to private practice, and Gilber- Gilberto called me over one day, and he said, David, this is all in Spanish. I- I- I'd like for you to represent me. I couldn't believe it. I later found out the reason why he wanted me is because no lawyer would touch the case. They were all afraid after this Moran case and what Marty's talking about that they couldn't represent Gilberto Rodriguez or Wella because they would then get indicted if they took any of his money. But I was a kid and I was excited about representing him and he told me he could pay me with the proceeds of a book deal that he was getting fronted to write his uh, book. And it was a large fee for a kid who had just left the public defender's office. So I went to Judge Moreno, the chief judge at the time, and I asked him if I could take the case and he asked the prosecutor in open court if there was any evidence that the book proceed money was illegitimate. The prosecutor said he didn't have any evidence at that time, and Judge Moreno then turned to me and said, sounds like you can take it, uh, and I would be your first witness at a trial if you ever get prosecuted. So I took the fee. I represented the head of the Cali cartel. I was excited. I was preparing the case for trial when I was told that if we went to trial, the government would indict 27 family members of Gilberto Rodriguez Orwella and Gilberto at that point decided he couldn't risk his family members getting indicted. We struck a deal where the family members agreed to sign on uh, for immunity if Gilberto would plead guilty, which he did, and it's really sad that that happened. I think we could have won the trial and he was squeezed into pleading guilty with threats to his 27 family members, including his wife and children. So Gilberto pled guilty, Uh, went to prison. His family did not get prosecuted. And we still talk on email to this day. Gilberto Rodriguez Orwella, the former head of the Cali cartel, is at Butner, North Carolina, in a medical facility. And we continue to email. Now back to Marty explaining how he represented the original in-house lawyer to the Cali cartel, Bill Moran. Well, it
1: was a lengthy process. Uh, I first was engaged by Mr. Moran and his law partner, Lawrence Kerr, to defend their law, their, the confidentiality of their files, both electronic and hard copy, and to defend the client, independent client interests. Clients have an attorney-client privilege. The government set up a tank team. The taint team was then superseded by a process that is not done very, ordin- you know, very usually today, which is that a master was designated by Judge Hoovler to essentially mitigate on almost a document-by-document document basis, over an extended period of time, whether or not the crime fraud exception to the, law, the, the attorney-client privilege trumped the confidentiality of these law firm files. And so the Department of Justice sent down a prosecutor to represent the interests of the government. I represented Moran and Kerr, the law firm, and, you know, incidentally, the interests of their many clients and on almost a document-by-document document basis, we would de- determine, and if we couldn't agree, submit it to a master who was Lawrence Purceller, a very highly respected Washington lawyer and former prosecutor, you know, disputed issues. And this went on for well over a year and resulted in Judge Hoofler on review writing an opinion that named U.S. via Bell, where Essentially, memorializing the wisdom of having a judge or a master, not a, f- a federal prosecutor, tainting
0: make decisions about attorney-client issues. So, so let's also just set the stage for everybody about who the players are. Your client is this criminal defense lawyer, Bill Moran. Um, you know, cowboy boot wearing um, trial lawyer, um, brash. T- tell us a little about about you know, your guy. Bill was you know, fearless. He was brilliant. He was eloquent.
1: He was visceral. He was the paradigm of, of of a highly skilled, top-tier criminal defense lawyers in a pre-computer, pre-email age. Right. And he was really a, a transition time between the lawyers of the 60s and 70s, the F. Lee Baileys, the Edward Bennett Williams, the Percy Foremans, they didn't have emails to rely on. They didn't have to stay at a podium. They didn't have uh, visual cameras. They relied on their intuitive skills of cross examination. And Bill was very much from that legacy. But he was also very bright very hardworking, very understanding of the evolution of the criminal law, and, uh, you know, just provided first-rate representation as a trial lawyer. Marty, was,
0: it's got to be hard to represent a criminal defense lawyer like that who who probably, and, and, and in some cases justifiably, thought he knows how to try a case and represent someone and win. So, it, it's got to it's be tough. There was... more than the usual amount of client
1: attorney debates about the level of uh, vigor on cross-examination and ultimately on the pivotal decision about whether or not the client testifies which bill elected to do and
0: and 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 needed to do in terms of his you know emotional well-being right so let's talk about some of the other players his co-defendant um, was a lawyer from, uh, from D.C. named DeBell, the opposite, really, of Moran in terms of uh, how he presented himself.
1: He was more like a corporate lawyer, um, an intellectual. He wrote, the at that time, the leading treatise on international law from the perspective of the criminal justice system.
0: And then you have uh, Hoovler as the judge, who's known as sort of the Abe Lincoln of the Miami <coughs> judges, no?
1: If, if there was uh, a movie that was to be made, William Hoovler would play William Hoovler. He, he was, <laughs> you know, magnificent uh, in many ways. Um, he was, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough positive about his self-restraint. He and Bill Moran, you know, came from almost opposite ends of the human spe- you know, spectrum. You know, Bill was visceral, and this, this accusation, you know, just was so raw to him that his emotions, you know, were sky-high, understandably, on a daily basis. Judge Hoovler, you know, believed in the law, believed in civility, didn't want lawyers fighting in, in his courtroom. I, I mean... You know, Judge Huvland knew that I flew home most weekends to see my son, and he would stop Friday court thirty or forty minutes early in order to maximize my chances of beating the traffic going west. Is it eight thirty-six or eight twenty-six? Yep, you got yeah. it. But you know, what other judge does that for one of twenty participants in this massive multi-defendant case? But he cared about my maintaining the best I could over a case that was supposed to go 2
0: months and went closer to 5 so so Marty how do you I mean you're from Boston you're trying a case in Miami this was the second really lengthy trial you've you've tried in Miami how do you how do you prepare and and set up shop for a trial that's going to be many months away from home I, I, it's it's hard no i mean i've done it's 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 taxing on you the family yeah. it's hard Well, you
1: know, first, you get uh, the equivalent of an office where, uh, you, you know, I rented each time a condo rather than staying in hotels. Second, as you know, you need to, this is a marathon, not a dash. The prior trial was about three months. This trial ended up being five months. You need to stay healthy. You need to stay athletic. You need to stay energized. You need to stay positive and this had the added ordeal of you know trying to manage bills emotions because as i said it was raw he is not a person that internalized the accusations instead he externalized them believed that he was being unfairly and wrongly charged certainly he was being overcharged but it was uh, a contest and fortunately you know, I was aided by a terrific defense team. Let's this talk about that alone. defense team.
0: Yeah, no, let's talk about it. You, it was like the 27 Yankees. I mean, you had Albert, you had <laughs> Albert Krieger, Roy Black, the Srebnik brothers as rookies. Um, yeah. t- tell us a little about uh, trying a case with Albert Krieger and, and Roy Black. This wasn't the first time you had done so. Yeah, well, Roy Roy was not a principal in this case.
1: Roy, Albert, and I tried the prior case, right. the Clueda Falcon case this case, Howard was the principal lawyer for Michael LaBelle. Scott was helpful and enormously skilled and a great uh, support for all of us. And Albert was just the embodiment of the Sixth Amendment. I mean, if you needed to pick a lawyer in these decades that just represented the best of what it meant to be a criminal lawyer, it was Albert Krieger. He, uh, you know, about a decade older than me, a man I respected. He was, he and I forged a relationship over the lengthy and, uh, and difficult uh, case we had tried before Judge Moreno at late 05 and early 06. And Albert essentially volunteered to represent Moran with me. Wow. Because of the peril to the criminal defense bar, because of the risk that a conviction on these horrific charges would chill the defense bar and extinguish the centrality of our role, which is to stand between the least popular, the most unpopular uh, defendants who were being the targets of this incredibly powerful government that at that time was just learning how to maximize it's new statutory arsenal that had resulted from the war on drugs and the war on crime you know when i started it was a single federal criminal code i received it in 19 you know in 1972 when i began it changed once in 1980 with the maritime statute uh, but again until 1984 you used the same law the same book you had in 1970 Starting in 1984, the criminal justice system got politicized and every politician knew that to be tough on crime was a no-brainer in terms of electability. And we were facing in the late 80s, and in this case in the 90s, a government that had been given enormous additional powers that didn't exist in the 70s. Minimum mandatory punishment, meaning judges could not Moderate a sentence if a jury convicted on a statute like the drug statute that carried with it 10 to life, an abolition of parole, 85% service of sentence as a minimum rather than the old 60% a service of sentence. The, the, so what, a, were,
0: what, what were your, what was the the lawyers looking at if they were convicted with, with all those new statutes? Well, at
1: minimum, 10 years, because yeah. if they were convicted mm-hmm. on Title 21, Judge Hoofler, who was a, a compassionate, proportionate, you know, judge, could not give a sentence
0: less than 10
1: years in jail.
0: Yeah. Whoa, hold on a second. 10 years is the lowest sentence the judge could give for representing your client That seems pretty outrageous. Let's see what happens next. Our country was founded on the idea of trial by jury. And for hundreds of years, about 20% or more of cases went to trial. And that was true in federal court, too. But in the 80s and 90s, those numbers have plummeted. And today, only about 3% of federal cases go to trial. It's really, really sad, and it's not the way the system was set up. This is one of those cases that explain why that's the case. If you go to trial and lose, like Bill Moran and Micah Bell, you were facing decades in prison because of minimum mandatory sentences, because of the enormous sentencing guidelines that passed in 1984. It was truly, awful and the odds were stacked against you. So many defendants decided it was better to plead guilty and cooperate. Even innocent defendants did that. So why did these two lawyers, Bill Moran and Abel, have the guts to go to trial? You'll hear about the trial itself next. And so on the other side, you have uh, Bill Pearson and Ed Ryan. D- tell us about those prosecutors. And, and Ed Kasarovsky. And Ed agent
1: Who was memorable and, uh, and uh, you know, had mastered the details. and was fully committed to the full scope of this prosecution. Um, I didn't, they, they, they divided up and Ryan was principally responsible for the Moran side of the prosecution and uh, Mr. Pearson for the Abel side. You know, I could, unlike my client who understandably uh, demonized Ed Ryan, um, you know, he and I and Al Krieger tried this case like professionals. Yeah. But it was a tough
0: case with uh, high stakes. So speaking of the high stakes, some of the lawyers decided to cut deals because the stakes were so high. And and this was really the start of seeing trials plummet. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, 25% of federal cases went to trial. And this was the start of the period where uh, you got almost no trials in federal court. And because people were looking at so much time, like you say, in this case, there was a minimum mandatory 10 years and probably a much higher sentence, actually, if they were convicted of the RICO and everything else. So you see a lot of the co-defendant lawyers plead uh, out and testify against your clients. I mean, can, can you tell us a little about what happened there? Sure. Well, the pressures came from
1: two directions. One pressure came from the chilling potential consequences of a conviction and the enormity of of knowing that Judge Hoovler could not give you a sentence that would require you to serve less than eight and a half years. There was only one power that could help you under these circumstances. That was the United States attorney. Right. Who you solely and had the power to file a motion that would relieve a judge of the obligation of imposing a minimum mandatory sentence. The test used to be, for cooperation, the truthfulness of the testimony. The new test was substantial assistance in the investigation and prosecution of another person determined in the sole discretion of the United States attorney. And so the double pressures on lawyers and on defendants was to try to escape these uh, draconian sentencing consequences by offering testimony to the one participant in the criminal justice system that, that had the power to take the hammer off a defendant's head and actually allow a judge at their discretion to individualize a sentence, to make it proportionate to the underlying offense. And so, this led yeah. in Miami to uh, prisoners, inmates in, in the MCC in Miami. There was We also had a new detention statute that resulted in a far higher number of people not getting bail because judges could say they were dangerous, not just a flight risk. And so you had people lining up literally to audition for prosecutors, to proffer their testimony, knowing who the targets of the government was. And they called it jumping on the bus, meaning the prosecutors had a a, a deep bullpen of potential witnesses and other inmates saw opportunities. This happened in the Noriega case, in the Magluta Falcone case, and in the Cali cartel case. Prosecutors had a difficult time determining which of some of these are very intelligent, skilled, cunning criminals who are now devoting all of their time and attention to how can I help the government? How can I be of substantial assistance in their
0: prosecution of Bill Moran? So, so the and, trial goes from two months to five months because of these this sort of bus of cooperating witnesses, including not just drug dealers, but these lawyers who have pled guilty. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we've talked about in, in, in the previous episodes with, with Roy and others is in state cases, you get discovery, you find out <clears throat> what they're going to say, you get their statements. In, in Florida, you even get to take their depositions in a state case, but in a federal case, not only do you have this huge incentive to jump on the bus and and make things up and other things, but you do, as a defense lawyer, you don't even get to see what these people are going to say until they get on the stand so well, the most
1: dangerous witness is the witness your client is not prepared for, and in Moran's case, it was a client from many years ago who i believe his name well i I'm not sure of his name because he wasn't even a central player in our years of preparation. And yet he testified and said, I'm in jail. I'm serving a, an eight or nine or 10 year sentence. And I remember with Mr. Moran representing me years ago that when I was there and my appearance in court, Moran stood up from his counsel table, red faced, Came over to me and essentially threatened me that if I decided to cooperate, bad things would happen to me. He, at least, so you understand his motive, his bias, his need to find someone after six or seven years to testify about, you know, was understandable to a jury uh, as to why they should distrust his testimony. Of course. The danger with him is that on his heels, the government calls his aunt, who is a sweet, credible civilian who said that immediately, that she was in the audience, saw this physical event, and immediately thereafter was called by her nephew, who told her that he had been threatened by his lawyer. Wow. That made him a credible, corroborated, dangerous witness. But Judge Hoofler had granted our motion in part for the prison tapes of the MCC on the days immediately before this witness decided to call the government and seek to cooperate. Oh, there must've
0: been gold in those
1: tapes. On those tapes, you have him teaching his aunt what would help him escape years of imprisonment. It was explicit that he was recruiting her to give false testimony to help him be a corroborated witness, be a witness they called. Wow. On the tapes, he's saying, you can't tell Ed this. <laughs> and this is what demonstrates the danger of the system. It's not, you know, prosecutors in bad faith deliberately using lying witnesses to further a prosecution, even one of the gravity of this case. It's the creativity. It's the need that our system creates when they put people in jail for decades and give them only one escape route that being to
0: testify against somebody that the government considers more important. But Marty, what a moment to have those tapes and be able to actually show the jury about those lies, because we see every day in court, come on, we see, we know in our bones that the witness is lying, but we don't have the goods to prove it like that, especially yep. when we don't get discovery, but you got the tape. So tell us about that moment when you're crossing him and, and you catch him with his pants down.
1: Well, it, it was, we, we found out about it. We got the tapes only after the witness had testified and after the aunt had testified and the judge and his discretion granted the, uh, part of our motion for the prison tapes. And we got the tapes and we we made a, dec- a strategic decision to use, how to use them, how to play them, how to have transcripts on demonstratives for the jury, right? and then to use this these tapes and use this event to try to demonstrate to the jury what you're correct we couldn't accept in a vacuum with other witnesses which is to illustrate that it's the system that's an invitation for these desperate former criminals to escape the consequences of their sentences it's an invitation for Unreliable, untrustworthy sure. accusations, and I really think one of the reasons, one of many reasons, why this jury did not convict Bill Moran and Mike Bell, is that they experienced the, the the raw reality of a desperate person orchestrating a convincing lie through the corroboration of his aunt.
0: Now, now you're able to show. That side of it, and and these criminals and their and their bias for testifying. But going into the trial, you had a big uphill battle because you're representing criminal defense lawyers, and and of all the people in the justice system, we criminal defense lawyers are the least liked, especially at that time during the war on drugs, where you're representing drug dealers, uh, and not just any drug dealers. Moran and Abel were representing the Cali cartel, which you know. So so so, how do you? decide what jurors you want, and and how do you get a fair jury where you're representing people who are just not liked? Well, again, Judge Hoofler, in his
1: exercise of discretion, granted a, a, a very lengthy jury questionnaire that went out to an enormous number of potential Venari people, and we got to see these questionnaires well before the selection of the jury. And what they demonstrated to us, and it's as true today as it was in this case, is that when jurors are asked for their overall respect, who do they trust? Is it judges? Is it prosecutors? Is it law enforcement agents? Is it defense lawyers? Where are we on that list? witnesses. Yeah. The only category who are more disrespected than criminal defense lawyers, more untrusted distrusted than defense lawyers are expert witnesses. Uh, and all right, so we're not last. That, almost, that uh, c- concretized the burdens, both for Albert and I, and our credibility and its centrality, standing between other criminal
0: defense lawyers and a jury that distrusted them. And so, you know, I, I, I looked at um, Ed Ryan's opening and he really played up um, and tried to use that distrust of lawyers in his opening. He said uh, that Moran and Abel sold their souls for money, and he said this case was about bullets, bribes, and attorneys. I mean, that's really powerful uh, imagery to use for an opening. and And were you expecting him to come out of the box so strong like that? Yes, you know, we had been spent two days in Washington trying
1: to dissuade the Department of Justice from authorizing. The prosecution or if they approve the prosecution authorizing the charges so by this time this was the super bowl and and the gloves were off right this, this was this was as much uh, your know, courtroom warfare as as you can imagine and uh you know ed and ryan is is eloquent and, and, and communicates to jurors and uh and it was a very dangerous foe in terms of our representing bill. Um, you know, we we needed to essentially teach the jurors what it meant to be a criminal defense lawyer. What was the importance of the role of a criminal defense lawyer? I mean, think of it, who who but a criminal defense lawyer stands between an accused citizen and the power of the sovereign? Who but a criminal defense lawyer is job it is to maximize individual liberty and constitutional rights. It's the government's, uh, if not their job, then the corollary of their position to maximize the powers of the sovereign. I mean, so, it's an example, Lawrence Kerr is Bill Morant's partner. No one knew more about these cases than Lawrence Kerr. Lawrence Kerr testified to grand juries the grants of immunity, exculpating Bill Morant putting his own liberty at risk because he was not walking down the script that the government would have hoped for him. We wanted to call Lawrence Kerr as a defense witness. Sure, The government wouldn't immunize him. (laughs) We couldn't call Lawrence Kerr. This was hardball. This was the government maximizing its powers, the defense having the obligations to really educate the jury in two categories. One, what is the role of a criminal defense lawyer? And it is not always intuitive. Right. And second, what is the risks that this new criminal justice system with its uh, an emphasis on cooperation, what are the risks that create the uh, foundation of untrustworthiness when the case against Moran
0: was based to some, to a large extent, on his ex-clients? The Super Bowl. I love how marty puts it there that's what trials really are and we'll hear what happens in that super bowl next so how is the government going to prove a case like this in federal court it's going to do it like it does in every other federal case with snitches rats chavatos there's lots of names for these kinds of witnesses that defense lawyers use but in this case in particular there were lots of witnesses willing to run forward and try to help the government out in exchange for reducing their sentence so if they're serving a monster sentence there's one way to get out of jail go and help the government point the finger at someone else and the government can get your sentence reduced that's not a that's not true of course with defense lawyers we can't offer witnesses anything for their testimony liberty money or anything else So it's a monster advantage that the government has where they can offer witnesses their liberty. All they have to do is point the finger at the defendant. But it's also a monster reason for those witnesses to lie. Of course, if you could get out of jail and all you had to do is point the finger at someone, so many people would do that. That's why defense lawyers can't offer anybody money or anything else. But the government can offer the keys to the prison cell. We'll hear about it next. Marty, you raise an interesting point, which is not only do they have the new statutes where they can charge minimum mandatory, they have the advantages of discovery where they don't have to give uh, statements in advance. They can file these motions to reduce people's sentences, but they also have the power to immunize witnesses, which the defense doesn't have. So, it, you know, you raise the, the Kerr witness, but there's, there's probably lots of witnesses who become afraid to testify for the defense. The few uh, witnesses that you may have, you can't offer them lower sentences, you can't offer them money, you can't offer them anything. Um, immunity, I mean, people must have been running for the hills when you wanted to interview them for this trial.
1: Well, look, particularly when the fabric of the case was based in part on the obtaining of affidavits with the consent of the witnesses' lawyers, and yet because the government had extrinsic evidence that the contents of these affidavits were, were inconsistent with other evidence, and because they were being obtained for the purposes of assisting in the protection or the representation of the Kali defendants, that was the, part of the cornerstones of the government's case. Moran couldn't give immunity to Mr. Nolongo, who was one of the affiants, He couldn't give him one dollar. He couldn't even help him in his prison circumstances yet the government could take a witness and essentially provide a ticket out of a 20 or 30 year sentence, which happened in this case. It's a a very asymmetric system and a very very difficult one.
0: But I want everyone to understand what Moran and Abel were charged with with the affidavits, because it's an interesting theory that the government had. The government was arguing that Moran and Abel tried to get folks to sign what the government believed to be false affidavits supporting Moran and Abel's clients. Now, of course, Moran and Abel uh, argued we believe the affidavits were true and, and correct affidavits um, and that we're doing lawyering work. So, so how, how does that play out? I mean, lawyers all the time try to get folks to sign affidavits in, in what they believe is the truth and supporting their clients. Well, you know, the, the
1: affidavits are not the panacea of, of a criminal defense, because as we saw in this case, the affiant simply stands up after negotiating uh, a substantial assistance agreement and says that he lied in the affidavit, and he lied because he was afraid of uh, the, the Kali cartel uh, defendants who were seeking the affidavit, and the affidavit becomes... <laughs> you know, a piece of incriminating evidence instead of an exonerating uh, category of evidence. But in terms of the, the, the issues, our job, Albert and I, was to make a jury understand that it was Moran's job not to distrust his client, not to investigate his client, not to be the judge of what his client was saying to him to the extent his client said, Mr. Naranko knows that I didn't do A, B, and C. Mr. Moran took that information, went to the lawyers for the affiance to make sure the lawyers were aware and consented to this procedure. Went to the witness who on no occasion said to Mr. Moran, that's a lie. I can't sign that. So, where's the crime? So, we're, we're at the, the chilling effect on lawyers who believe that getting affidavits protects their clients. And, uh, you know, that's a, a strategic judgment and lawyers have different judgments and maybe mine is affected by my experience seeing how easily an affiant can walk away from his sworn under oath statement.
0: So how do you deal with that now, Marty? How do you deal with um, uh, witnesses that you're interviewing knowing what happened back uh, with this case?
1: Well, I prefer to have credible third parties, a great investigator who's got an unimpeachable reputation with a second, either a a young lawyer or a paralegal, do interviews that I don't memorialize into affidavits because I don't think ultimately in a world where confrontation rights
0: go both ways, Right. You know, the affidavits are that useful. So you forecasted before, and this is fascinating to me, that Bill wanted to testify. And he's, of course, a criminal lawyer and has has tried lots of cases. So you can imagine that he's fired up to testify and 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 uh, go toe to toe with Ed Ryan. Did you how do you prepare someone like Bill Moran uh, to get ready to testify?
1: Well, you you know, one obviously let him know the areas that we think are critical and pivotal to the jury's ultimate decisions. You know, if he's going to testify, not only does he have to give them his biography, um, he's got to admit to certain facts that we know he's going to be cross-examined on. He needs to address. The pivotal allegations in a credible way that a jury would resonate to rather than have the jury believe that he's lying to them you know it's the pivotal decision of a, of a criminal defense lawyer you've had it so many times you know how is the government case doing you know what are the chances we can win if i argue the defense right <laughs> you know my final argument and You know, I had, you know, the Babe Ruth of criminal defense lawyers, Albert Krieger to argue it with me. Judge Hoover allowed us both to make openings and closings.
0: Okay, I have to pause the podcast for a second and tell you just for a minute about Albert Krieger, in case you don't know who he is. When Marty says he was the Babe Ruth of criminal defense, that is so true. Albert was a larger than life figure. Literally the best criminal defense lawyer I have ever seen in court and one of the few lawyers I've seen where I've watched him and said, I'll never be able to do that, what Albert does. I just want to play for a second a clip of Albert, who passed away, sadly, in May of this year, of 2020. I'm sad I won't be able to interview Albert for this podcast, but he was the greatest and I just wanted to point that out. Okay, back to Marty.
1: But Bill Moran, you know, believed that this case could go against him and believed that he had to face that jury, face Ed Ryan, answer the hard questions and tell the jury why he did what he did. And, uh, you know, we prepared him, obviously, for the predictable cross-exam and for the, you know,
0: the, uh, the questions that we felt he needed to answer. Right, and and was he was the plan pretrial for him to testify, or was this sort of a game time decision, or how, how did that play out? It was an option, but as the case evolved, um, you know, with
1: more and more ex clients, you know, raising their hands and offering to testify, right? You know, it was a perilous case, and it became you know more and more logical to us that Bill was not only going to want to testify. But that his willingness to testify could further the defense rather than impede it.
0: Now, now, uh, you know Moran is a fiery guy and was a fiery lawyer to say the least, and and was sort of a persona. I mean, with the with the whole with the, even the way he dressed and the way he appeared in court. Do you? I mean, in, in preparing someone like that, do you tell him, listen, you know, you got to tone it down. Let's be a little bit more conservative, or do you let him be him? Um. Well, let him be him because. Bill was so so combustible
1: at the time that there was no way to, to, to restrain the predictable chemistry or toxic chemistry between Ed Ryan, who also had his heart in the prosecution, who was also a visceral type prosecutor and not a cerebral or a purely cerebral intellectual prosecutor. You know, it was
0: totally predictable that the jury was going to see uh, a, a lot of fire. There there's some uh, problems, obviously, like all of us have in, in our past. Bill had uh, some drug use in his past. Do you decide to bring stuff like that out on direct or do you let you let uh, Ryan deal with it on cross?
1: My memory is we brought it out on direct certain pieces of evidence that we knew that Ed Ryan had and that we predicted he would ask.
0: I I, want to read one part of the direct which made me laugh. Um, You asked him whether uh, he had ever intentionally committed a crime while representing clients. He he said, absolutely never. He declared emphatically, "Uh, did you ever possess cocaine with the intent to distribute it? I did not. He, He sort of screamed it out. Ever agree to commit a crime with Cali cartel leader Miguel Rodriguez Orwella? No, sir. His voice rising. I did not for one second, not me or anyone in my office. Then he paused for a sip of water. Excuse me, he said, "I'm hoarse from yelling at my lawyers," which uh, which made me which made me laugh. Was the jury was the jury sort of embracing Bill, or or uh, how did they react when he was? It there? was enormously
1: hard for us to read the jury, uh, because Bill was so uniquely outspoken, but in an eloquent way, in a in a in a way that I thought a jury could empathize with what it means to be a wrongly accused professional whose professional reputation, whose ability to do what he loves and represent people, and whose freedom was so deeply in peril. And I think think the jury, I think the net result of Bill's
0: testifying was to help his defense rather than burden it. Bill Moran, this Joe Frazier of criminal defense lawyers, testified even got to give his own closing, which we'll talk about in For the Defense, next. Every defense lawyer dreams of giving closing argument. It's the best part of the trial. It's the most dramatic. You get to bring it all together. You get to really persuade the jury why they should find your client not guilty. And in this case, Bill Moran had the two heavyweights, Albert Krieger and... Marty Weinberg, and Marty and Albert got to split their closing, which was a huge advantage. The jury would get to hear from both of these fantastic lawyers. But in this case, they also got to hear from the client himself, Bill Moran, who was a lawyer. Judge Hoovler let Moran give partially his own closing argument, and we're going to talk about that with Marty coming up and For the Defense next. And then on cross-examination, I'll read a little part of the cross um, Ed Ryan was questioning him about whether he was hiding documents. He said, I wasn't hiding anything. He yelled at the prosecutor. When Ryan sought to press his point further, Moran responded, I can't answer your false questions. Moran then turned to Judge Hoover and declared, I can't answer questions over his big mouth. And Ryan said, let me lower my big mouth a little bit. Um they, it was really heated between the two of them from 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 was really
1: heated, but, uh, you know, Bill... Bill ended up answering all of the questions, and some were difficult. These were gray areas. They were, you know, Bill was representing multiple defendants. Bill was receiving fees from Miguel Rodriguez. Bill, on two occasions, sent small amounts of money to the families of his American clients who were living without any means because their husbands were locked up um the government had all of the documents that uh, master Barcella ended up finding were outside the attorney client privilege which gave gave them a, a unique window into client preparation so they had ammunition bill was aware of certain documents in the file you know that he would have to explain and again these were hard issues for a jury they, they were not he was not. This was not a classic criminal defense case because he had multiple clients. They wanted to go to trial. Sure, it was mythology that Bill Moran dissuaded them from cooperating. They wanted to go to trial. Several got convicted, and several, after a period of jail, offered their cooperation so that part of the case which was the cornerstone of the government allegations a lot with the false affidavits that bill discourage people from cooperating in order to further the interests of rodriguez over the interests of his american clients you know bill needed to answer those allegations and he answered them so credibly bill moran isn't deciding whether they cooperate they are deciding whether to cooperate
0: so i i uh I want to talk a little about the drama of his testimony because I, as a footnote, I was a law clerk at the time in the building, and we heard you know Moran was going to be on the stand, so all the law clerks came to watch that day, and, and I think it was a couple of days he was on the stand, and we were packed into Hoover's courtroom, which wasn't a huge courtroom right. um, back at that time, but all of us were there. And, and you could feel the electricity in the room between Moran and Ryan. I mean, it was heated Is it doesn't describe it. And I remember at a break, the two of them literally went to blows. They got in each other's face. The marshals had to pull them apart. I mean, tell us what happened there. Well. I- you know, I don't remember the exact details other
1: than they brushed up against one another, but I do remember the feelings, which is that Bill Moran felt locked. He felt that he was not an appropriate person for them to be prosecuted, that he didn't commit these paradigm monetary offenses that were done, for instance, by the lawyer who was keeping money in his ceiling or the lawyer that was paying other lawyers to do representation that he was exercising and discharging the heart of the Sixth Amendment, representing unpopular people who wanted the trial, who were not offered deals without cooperation, and who had refused to cooperate. And he felt wrong at, uh, in, 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 at his very soul. And Ed Bryan represented the party that had wronged him. And Bill was on trial for his life. And on trial for his reputation and his freedom, and it was it was as electric and as raw as anything I've experienced in the courtroom, because you know Bill was able to articulate his emotions. He was able to cry out to this jury that he was being wronged, that he, that he wasn't lying to them, that he was not the perpetrator of some massive. Kali Cartel drug conspiracy, but a lawyer representing unpopular people in the best manner that he could and best manner that he did.
0: Okay, Marty, but I have to ask, who would have won the fight between Ed and, and Bill? Who would have won?
1: Um, Ed had some, some weight and some size <laughs> on Bill. Yeah, but Bill had the heart, right? Bill, as our friend Vinny Flynn said, Bill reminded him of Joe Frazier.
0: So and, Vinnie uh, Flynn, uh, he was a lawyer who testified for the defense. He was a criminal defense lawyer. And and uh, tell us what he said about Bill.
1: But Bill says he described Bill Moran's uh, forensic style as the equivalent of uh, then at that time, Joe Frazier, a famous heavyweight champion that went toe to toe with Muhammad Ali in three memorable fights.
0: I love it. I love it. Now, the defense rests. We get to closing. And, and I think you said before that that you and Albert get to split up the closing. Hoover lets you split up the closing. But there's also one unique part, which I've never seen in any other trial that I've, I've followed, which is Hoover lets the defendant himself, Bill Moran, give 20 minutes of his own closing. And after reading that, I started thinking maybe we should ask for that in all cases to let our <laughs> clients uh, give a little closing. What, what, how, how did that play out? Well, it's,
1: again, a demonstration that Judge Hoofler, you know, just did his absolute best to give the defendants due process and to give them an opportunity to escape the horror of being convicted of racketeering or drug conspiracy. And when we asked, when Albert or I asked Judge Hoofler to be able to split our final argument time three ways with a a discreet period of time for bill to testify to to argue um, he he allowed that and uh, it it was unique usually if there's even a, you need to be a pro se defendant to get in front of a jury which regrettably bill was to a large extent
0: on the retrial I remember also watching the closings as a, as a law clerk and and thinking how powerful it was for Bill to get up and speak to the jury. Let me let me read a little bit of the of the transcript just so the so we can be on the same page. He said, "I cannot believe my innocence is so fragile that what you have heard here can shatter it." Um, and he got emotional. He said, "This is no high school debate. This is no roundtable discussion. This is my life." This is about real people with real consequences. I just asked you to consider all of the evidence, to consider whether or not they told the truth. And then he named each of the 12 jurors, calling them my jury. If you come back with a verdict you will be proud of, I will be safe, and this nightmare will be over. I mean, I get chills just reading it. Um, what a powerful closing.
1: Yep, and there's no way, no matter how skilled the lawyers to duplicate that one-to-one magic wow. of, a, of a citizen whose life is in peril, talking face-to-face with a juror with the power and the eloquence
0: of my friend and client, Bill Moret. So the jury goes out, um, and they're out for many, many days. It's the worst part, isn't it, when the jury's uh, out and we're waiting around? Oh, it was uh, nightmarish. And the jury starts sending notes that they're hung and they can't reach a verdict. What, what are you guys feeling? Th- th- those also are the worst kinds of notes to get that, that a jury after a five-month trial can't reach a verdict.
1: Well, we're, we're both uh, you know elevated that this was not, as so many juries do, a rush to judge someone charged as a co-conspirator with the world's leading alleged criminals. But a, 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 juror, a jury that we at least were able collectively to persuade some that Bill Moran acted as a lawyer and not as a
0: co-conspirator of the Cali cartel. Now I want to maybe talk a little inside baseball here, but but the judge ends up giving what's called an Allen charge, and and we know an Allen charge is called a dynamite charge. It's it's when a jury says we can't reach a verdict, and the judge says we really need you to try again uh, because a lot of people have spent a lot of money and time and, and, and typically when an Allen charge is given, it's not good for us for the defense, right?
1: It's ordinarily not good, but that's the corollary of ordinarily. The, the, the division of jurors is weighted against the defense and in favor of the prosecution. Um, here, you know, they were jurors convinced of Bill Moran's innocence and jurors that didn't waver, even though other jurors were, bel- were convinced that the government had proven its case. And, you know, maybe the reason they didn't waver was Bill Moran's personal uh, appeal to them. Um, maybe the reason they didn't waver is they had Albert Krieger in essentially put in the Sixth Amendment on trial rather than just Bill Moran. maybe they didn't waver because they saw the perils of the criminal justice system after 1987 and its elevation of the value of furthering one party's prosecution at the expense of another party,
0: in this case, the defense. And what did the jury end up doing? What was their verdict? My
1: memory is they acquitted Bill of the substantive racketeering charge and hung on everything else setting up a retrial, which the government pursued.
0: So Bill Bill's acquitted of the main charge. It's a total rejection of the government case. When you're acquitted of the main charge, they can't reach verdicts on the other charges. I mean, how, how is it fair to force someone like Bill Moran or anybody to have to go through another trial like that? It just seems crazy to me that that we can force people to have to defend themselves again um, when when there's an acquittal and a hung jury like that.
1: It's unfortunately double jeopardy protects Bill against being re-prosecuted for the count of acquittal, but as you know, not the counts where the jury was hung. It's as if there was no trial and it needed to reoccur because there was no middle ground in this case. There was no plea bargain that Bill would accept or even entertain. He believed in his innocence and wanted to get back to his life mission of representing defendants.
0: And, and you and Albert could not do another five-month trial. I mean, I mean, you can't. Financially, it, can't. it just doesn't work. We put in the finances
1: aside because the stakes were so much higher than our you know, kind of self-interest. It was an exhausting trial. <laughs> of course. So I, and I had obligations to you know, my family in Boston that I couldn't
0: abandon a third time after two lengthy Miami. Trials. You needed to set up shop here in Miami, but so with with the with the retrial, what happens to Moran? Just so everybody hears the end of the story.
1: Bill takes a much a more uh, central role as representing himself. Um, he, you know, had a co counsel, um, but he was the principal advocate for Bill Moran, and the results were not as good. And uh, it's 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 so hard to represent yourself and to test, and say to testify for yourself, to cross-examine and to have a witness say, well, you know, Mr. Moran, you were there, you did this. You know, there's no detachment. And Bill, was, Bill the jury went out a second time and there was a juror that was holding out for acquittal. And the juror, the government moved to strike the juror the jury was stricken in Judge Hoovler's discretion. It became a major appeal issue. And the jury quickly thereafter convicted Bill Moran after the holdout juror was taken off the jury on the premise that her objections, if I recall correctly, were more based on her disagreement with the law than based on her weighing of evidence, an issue that was strongly Objected to an appeal, that right. uh,
0: Scott Strebnik and I did later. For Bill. And and Bill, I, I got so spooked when that juror was was released that he he takes off, he gets captured later, and no. and ultimately I think gets sentenced to five years. But one of the things that people don't realize is that in these retrials, it's a huge advantage for the government, even without having uh, the twenty seven Yankees representing Bill, you and you and Albert. The government gets to fix all of their mistakes, gets to fix, is ready for things like the tapes that you found in the first trial. It's, it's almost impossible ready to win a retrial. They
1: just didn't call this witness in right. the end, which right. eliminates right. the impeachment value of the tapes, but eliminates the best evidence to show the dangers of
0: the witness reward system. They just fix their 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 case. Right. It's 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 almost impossible to to just to come and for a second trial. Their resources are limitless. Right, right. Um, and and what about you after this Miami trial? What do you get back? You go back to Boston. It's hard to regroup after a trial of, of five months. Yeah, for, fortunately, I have a low volume practice like like yours, David. Where
1: the, the demands of these big cases that we defend. Uh, don't permit us to do what other lawyers do, which is to go in different courtrooms every day with a different client. I ended up trying a, a, a racketeering case in Boston for defendants that were the exact type of defendants that Congress designed the RICO statute for it was an organized crime case. And it too ended in a hung jury oh. in Worcester, Massachusetts uh, the year after. And more and more, you know, my practice has evolved towards representing uh, lawyers, doctors, judges, businessmen, healthcare professionals. You know, it's uh, it's a very different practice than than the practice that
0: we had in the 1990s. And and Marty, what's the what's the big takeaway from the Bill Moran case in terms of? the Sixth Amendment and going after criminal defense lawyers, we don't really see criminal defense lawyers being charged all that much anymore uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. It happened a lot. Is there is there a takeaway from your trial for, about how the practice changed? Well, I think lawyers, after seeing the experience of I
1: mean, six lawyers having their firm's records seized and getting prosecuted, and some of them going to jail, some of them becoming cooperating witnesses. Lawyers didn't march up to or for some over the line with the same frequency. The ends didn't justify the means. Lawyers had to worry about appearance as well as reality. And um, again, I don't believe that Mr. Moran walked over the line in the manner that the government charged him. He wasn't a racketeer, he wasn't a drug trafficker. And these obstruction issues over affidavits know were very troubling but i think lawyers there was the the government did succeed in 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 changing the, the the practices of many defense lawyers in miami they became more cautious they cared more about appearance they wouldn't you know do some of the things that the lawyers in the 1970s or 80s did for these major clients, right? You know, the, right. the practice got professionalized. I was always impressed with the skill of Miami lawyers. There's just terrific lawyers. You guys, you know, rose to the challenge of representing these major alleged criminals. You know, the generation before you, the Jack DeNiro's, Neil Sonnets, Alberts, Roy, you know, just great. Jay Hogan, great lawyers. Hi, Shapiro, his partner. And, but, but I think the, the bar got a little more conservative.
0: Right, right. And
1: the world changed, you know, that uh, that more and more cases were being litigated based on documents and emails and, and less on pure witnesses not corroborated by backup documentation. More and more defendants were pleading guilty. Less and less defendants were challenging The government, and it's a scary thing. You represent a generation that may be the last generation, David. You know, I was the Vietnam generation. The answer, you know, instead of being Weatherman, we became criminal defense lawyers. (laughs) You know, but after your generation, it's hard for criminal lawyers to become trial lawyers. You don't just need a brain. You need a a skill in in this enormously challenging dynamic of of a trial law. And there's so and few
0: trials left. I mean, there's, I it's it's a dying it's a dying art. And and yeah. you, you know, you tried some of the biggest cases in Miami history uh, with some of the great <laughs> lawyers that that you said. So we consider you part of the Miami <laughs> family and the Miami bar. So I, I just wanted to thank you for doing this interview, Marty, because You're it was welcome. It was great to hear about this this trial and to hear about how uh, you successfully represented Bill in that first trial and successfully represented the Sixth Amendment. So I just wanted to thank you again for, for telling us about this great trial.
1: I do want to make sure that my co-counsel, Albert Krieger, I couldn't have done it without him. He's, he's a the best.
0: And the I, best.
1: And just elevated us all as criminal defense lawyers. Thank so you, Marty. Thank you, David. Be well.
0: What a treat to talk to a wonderful trial lawyer, Marty Weinberg. And I love how at the end of the interview, he talks again about Albert, who is just the absolute best. And we're all thinking about Albert. And Marty also mentioned the great criminal defense bar in Miami. Next week, we'll be talking to H.T. Smith, one of the classic, great Miami trial lawyers. And he's going to tell the story of when he had to travel up to Broward to try a first degree murder case. And Broward County is a totally different place than Dade County. And when H.T. Smith showed up, you'll hear about how he dealt with a judge who was wearing handcuffs as a tie tack. Lots of great stories from H.T. coming up next week on For the Defense. Thanks for listening.